sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the bank. She saw that the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Hey, my name's Tim. I'm the lead pastor here. It's really good to be with you on this holiday weekend, July 4th weekend. Uh, and thanks for being here. And if you're watching online, it's good to be with you in this way. If you're watching it sometime later, um, hello to you as well. Um, I'd, I, uh, I wanted to, to start uh, this, this morning just with a, uh, if we can, um, if you'd join me in this, just kind of a, just a, maybe a brief a meaningful moment of silence um, for for Damian Lillard. I, it just it feels like the elephant in the room for the few of us that pay attention to the Trailblazers and care. So no, okay, you're not ready. We're not ready to do this. No, too, that's dang it. I, you know, I always I don't know. Is it too soon? Is it is it now? Is it awkward to not address it? Those kind of things. So too soon. Okay, noted. Um, we're moving on. So uh, if you don't know who that is. Um, uh, we probably need a long lunch and explain it to you, but uh, somebody very meaningful to our city and uh, hope just a good, good uh, guy and contributed so much and want the best for the team, want the best for him. And uh, we got a great Bible story today. So, um, hey, we are, we've, been, we've been teaching through the book of Luke for a long time and have taken a pause these last couple of weeks. Uh, we've, we're almost done with the book of Luke. At the very end of August, we're going to catch up on a, a two final talks in the book of Luke, and then we'll move into Acts right as we as a church turn uh, 20 years old. And, uh, and that was planned and, and, and thought out and kind of calendared. And then we want to take a break this summer uh, to look into the Old Testament of where God shows up in really significant and obvious ways. Um, and where he saves. And the, the truth is, is that the God of the Bible, the God that we worship, the God that we've just been singing to and praying to and listening for and desiring to meet with is a God whose, whose orientation is automatic, is deep in his character, who he is, is he is a God who delivers, rescues, redeems, and saves. That's, that's who he is. That's, that's core to the definition of who God is and who he wants us to know him as. Now, Many of us can tell stories of how that is true and how we've experienced that and seen that, or we can look into scripture, or we can tell other people's stories. And so 
for many of us, that feels close and familiar. And then there's others of us that that seems really far away. And in fact, even as I say that, and even as we look at it on the screen, and there's a verse tucked in there, and it, and it says, our God is a God who saves from the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. And as we hear that, and as you want to see it up on, on the screen right there, it, th there's something in us that says, yeah, that's kind of for other people. Or I want to believe that, but it seems far away. And we're going to look at a story, you just heard it read as Jen read, um, where it's, it's for those that, that have a hard time believing that God does save. And so we're going to look at that together um, this morning. Before we do that, would you just take a moment with me and going to take a deep breath and let's close our eyes and, and listen for God and pray together. And then we'll open up scripture together. God, as we are gathered here in this room or if we're watching online or listening at a later time, we, we declare that you are with us that you are near, that you are not far away, that you are not distracted, that you're attentive and that you're aware of each and every one of us. There is no one that is outside of your sight and that you know us. Because there is none like you, you alone are the God, the creator of the universe. Would we know you as one who sees and saves us? And Holy Spirit, as we've invited you to already, would you continue to move not just in our time and in this, in this moment, but, but actually in us, would we be clay in your hands in some new way? Would you spark our minds to, to understand in a new way? Would you move our hearts to get in step with you and to be aware of you, to find joy in you? And Jesus, you are king. You are the one in which we find salvation and none other. And so would you lead us and guide us as we look into your word, as we seek your will, as we just sang, would your will be done in this creation, in this earth, in this time, but in each of us as well. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. The story we're looking at that you heard read and, uh, and, and perhaps it's, it's familiar to you. Uh, if you've never heard this story before, if this is like a brand new story to you, um, this is just a really, really good one. We're kind of taking some, some good ones. We did a really, uh, a kind of a, a significant one, but an obscure one last week. A, a couple weeks ago, we took one that was kind of maybe a little bit more well-known. This one is really well-known. It's a key kind of link in a story of God's people through the Old Testament. It's in a book uh, called Exodus. Uh, it's the second book. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, turn all the way kind of towards the beginning. Um, it's right on the first page of the second book, Exodus chapter two. And it's this, it's this story that, um, that is all about what we come to know as Moses, this child that's born Moses' childhood. It, it encapsulates his childhood. This is, this is the entirety of it. It's 10 verses. Um, but what it is, is it's, it's in a time that's not not good. It's in a very difficult, painful time. Uh, it's, it's God showing up in a clear way in a difficult, challenging time. It, listen to this in chapter uh, two says, I mean, uh, verse one of chapter two says this. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months, which is kind of a, a it, it just kind of slides in there when she saw that he was a fine child as if she gave birth and then like assessed, like, a, like are we keeping him or are we not? Like that, it, and 
you know, there was a difference between, a, you know, what a, having a male and a female meant at that time in history and in that particular context and country and, and regime at that time. Um, but if you're, a, if you're a mom or a dad and you've ever been in the room at the moment when, when you get to see your child for the first time, and I just have never heard of anyone, father or mother, that have said like, yeah, this one's just kind of average or like, eh. Like it's always like there's this, you know, this excitement and this bond and this love, love that happens. It's not always absolutely instant. But to say it should find child, like we're, we're definitely keeping this one. I've got three sons um, and uh, that happened with, with all three and it, it just got better as it went on the third and it was the best. And um, that's just, that's, that's, this is what happens to a parent. <laughs> Kidding, all of them, they're just, they're just great. But it, there's, this, there's this kind of comment in there when, when she saw that he was a fine child and they kept him for three months. It goes on. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch, and she placed the child in it and among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. What, what is so difficult and painful about this time, we kind of need to take just these 10 verses, and we've just read a few of them right now, but this is, there's this story and to, and to kind of take a, a wide angle view and kind of back up a little bit um, and, to, and to understand what's going on that that's such a weird experience what happened that you would hide a child for three months and then place them in the river. Why did that happen? Why did she do that? That is really, really bizarre. And again, if you're hearing this for the first time, you're like, what is going on and where is God? But as we back up a little bit and take a wide angle view, there's a, there's a context or a history that, is, that has gone right before this. The, um, it says he's a tribe from, from Levi, married a Levite woman. That's, that's one tribe of a, a whole number of them, 12 of them. And they come uh, from a distant land. And in generations previous, they had come to, because of a famine, they have come to Egypt. And they're in the land of Egypt. And, um, and they come because they, these brothers that turned into these 12 tribes has sold one of their brothers into slavery. And then uh, eventually what happens is the whole family, generations later, ends up in slavery. Joseph is sold into slavery, and there's a dramatic story through the book of Genesis of, of Joseph's life. It's amazing and fascinating. God's saving over and delivering over and over and over again. But the leader that he rises under and comes into power in in Egypt, the leader that knows Joseph, that Pharaoh passes on, and another Pharaoh comes into power over time, and as the generations go on, and now we're at a point in time where the story is lost, and the relationship that the the Israelites had with the leadership in Egypt is gone and not, nobody knows about it and they're not honoring what had gone before. And in fact, the new leader said, we have to enslave them so that they don't take us over. And so they begin to oppress the Israelites and make them build things. Now the pyramids had already been built in, in Egypt, but they had them build a couple really significant cities and the, and the Israelites would do this work and they, they lived in Egypt and grew in Egypt and they continued to multiply and they, they made the work harder for them and harder for them. And what happened was they, they had more and more babies. Uh, and maybe there's some study or sociological or psychological study to, to do in there, but as they worked harder, they had more babies and they became more numerous. And the Pharaoh said, this isn't going well. We've oppressed them, we've made work harder for them and they just keep multiplying. It's time to take this violent step of now killing children. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna get to the midwives in the camps and we're gonna tell them when a baby is born, if it's a son, end its life. If it's a daughter, let it live. And so these Israelites' midwives 
were in the camps with the women and they decided they were gonna honor their God, the God that we worship. They were gonna be faithful to him and not do this horrendous act that the Pharaoh was commanding them to do. And so what they did is they went back to Pharaoh and they said, you know what? The Israelite women are just too sturdy. They just have kids so quickly, we can't get there. Like, like they text us and say, we're going into labor and we don't make it there in time. And Pharaoh bought it. And he's like, oh, blasted. Okay, so what do we do now? So then he said, any male Israelite child, and he gave a year under two years or whatever it was, would be put in, into the river, meaned drowned and their life. This, this is the context that this story takes place. So, so imagine that for a moment. The, the, the couple's name that we find, we find out later, his name is Amram, her name is something like Joshebed. Fantastic names, but this couple has had two kids previously, Aaron and Miriam, and now they're pregnant for the third time. And imagine what happens when you find out you're pregnant for the first time, and the excitement and the hope and probably some sickness and some uncomfortability, but just that we're pregnant, we're having a baby. It's the third one, and there's this new law in place that if I, if I give birth to a son, we have to end its life. That's, that's the regime we're living under. And so Joshebed gets pregnant, and there's the celebration in the home, but then there's this stinging reality of if she delivers a boy. And when she delivers a boy, she says, it's a fine child. And I'm gonna disobey this order and we're gonna keep him alive, which any of us would do. They keep it, keep it alive. We don't even ha have a name for him yet, but they keep the child alive for three months and they can't hide it any longer. So they have to come up with a plan. And here's this bizarre plan that they're gonna actually obey the law and place the baby in the Nile. But again, outsmarts Pharaoh a little bit. I'm not just gonna put a baby in the Nile. I'm gonna, I'm gonna build an ark for it. It's actually the same language used as the ark in Genesis. I'm gonna build this little baby ark. And I'm gonna put the, put the baby in it, cover it up, and I'm gonna put it in the reeds. And I'm gonna put it right next to where Pharaoh's daughter shows up to hang out and swim and bathe in the river. And there's this section of the Nile where she would come and bathe. And it was actually sectioned off a little bit. And they, there, some people say that it was probably, there was kind of these, these guards on the sides because there's alligators around. And so it was this sectioned off area. And somehow Miriam sneaks up and puts the baby in the reeds right next to where she's gonna come and bathe. And she shows up and she, she's bathing and, then, and they hear it. And she sends one of her female uh, attendants to go and find the baby. And she sees the baby and says, I want to keep this one. This is a great one. It says this in verse, um, verse four. It's a fine child. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw a basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. So she knows what her dad had said. supposed to end its life. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she said. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew, grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. I mean, what a, I mean that's a phenomenal plan. 
Like that was executed. I mean, imagine like the, 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 the model that they had set up in, in Amram's home. And they're like, okay, so here's where she comes down into the river and here's the reeds. And then you're gonna place it right here. And then you're gonna hide right here. And when they come and get it, you're gonna show up and pop up and be like, hey, can I help you out? And she goes along with it. And not only that, but she gets paid for it. So, I mean, in a different, you know, in a different context, this, this, this story could be used in a completely different way of like how a mom could get paid to raise her own child. Like that would be a whole phenomenal thing to figure out, to get paid for that. He's three months old. Pharaoh's daughter finds him, says, yes, will you take care of him? We're not going to let him die. He's preserved, he's saved, he's delivered, he's, he's rescued. And we don't know exactly the age, probably, probably about 10 years old or so, the child then goes and moves into the palace and becomes essentially Pharaoh's grandson and is raised and gets all the benefits of growing up there, which, which are pretty significant. There's a few things that, that are going on in this story that are, are significant. One is that we, we see the, the faith of Amram and Joshebed, willing to pay a, a, a price, willing to, to actually have their own lives ended to preserve the life of, of, their, of their son, who's a fine child, and disobey the regime's orders to kill the children. And so they have this faith, and it says in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, it says this, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child. There it is again, kind of a fine child. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. We see the faith of the parents in the midst of a very difficult time. When he's enslaved, they're enslaved as a people. Their friends are losing sons. Their neighbors, the, their life is, is is marked by oppression day in and day out. And yet they choose to believe in the God who has said that he will deliver them, that he will save them. And they're not seeing it in their life right now. And yet they choose to believe and risk everything and, and say, no, we're gonna keep him for three months and then we're gonna try this crazy scheme that actually works. There's a, another thing that goes on here is that um, Moses, At three months, he's, he's set out, and he's already had three months to, to get to know his, his mom, get to know his, his dad a little bit. I don't know how many of you have been around a three-month-old, but um, there's, there's things that start to happen at, at that age. Um, there's, this, there's this moment of uh, when you become a parent for the first time, and you're so excited, and then at least our journey was um, we went through this elation and this emotion and this kind of bonding moment of seeing our, our firstborn son for the first time. And we had all this help around us and it was great for like 48 hours. And then um, if, you, if you don't know what happens next, if everything is fine and that, you know, the child is a fine child and healthy and, and, and you two look like you can, you can hold it, um, they, the, the hospital and the team of people who have invested in you and loved you and cared for you so significantly do like, like that and they, they kick you out and, and you know, this, the last sign of love is like they look in and go, okay, you've got the car seat facing the right way. Good. You're, you're good to go. You're qualified as parents and you drive home with this, this living being and you get into your house and you're like, does, 
does anybody know we did this? We made this and now we're in charge of this and we didn't, you know, we didn't pass a class or get a degree or like, what do we do now? And then you're on your own and it's all work for like a, a little while. And then there's something that happens and I don't know exactly the, the, the week or the month that it happens, but all of a sudden your child sees you kind of for the first time and they respond and their face lights up. I mean, they've seen you before, but their face actually gets to, gets to respond to you. And there's like this engagement and all of the work is then worth it. You're like, I'm good, I'm good to go. I can get up at any time and feed and clean and change a diaper. I can do anything because that thing just smiled at me. This fine child smiled at me and it makes the whole world better. That's already happening for Amram and Joshebed and Moses. They've bonded. I, uh, I read a, a, a little section out of a book, uh, a number, I think it was about two, two months ago. Um, and it was written by a, uh, a psychologist by the name of uh, Kurt Thompson. Um, I'm a big fan. Some of you have read some of his work. He's, I think he's fantastic. The book he wrote is, that I was reading from is called um, The Soul of Desire. And in it, it talks about how we have a longing to connect with the God of the universe. That that's actually, our, our hearts are just, are just created that way. They're just pre-wired that way. They, that's just each and every one. Even if you're like, I don't think God saves because I don't think God exists. I, I just, I disagree with you. I, I, I think you have a heart that longs to connect with a being who created you, knows you, and, and loves you. There's something that happens because of how we're created as human beings. We long and have a desire to connect with God. And that is mirrored in our human relationships as we connect with one another. And what I read was this process called uh, attachment or secure attachment. It's a, it's a psychological term and there's been great research done, done recently. It's a, it's a long established theory or awareness of how human beings work. And there's these, these four things that happen and I mentioned them. And just to real quick mention them again, um, we all long to be seen, soothed, uh, safe and secure. And each one of those kind of means something different, but there's this process that happens when secure attachment happens between a child and a, a parent. There's a secure attachment that, that allows that child to, to flourish. And so there's a certain level of, of violence and disruption and pain and evil when a child is killed. But even more so that never got to happen was that child never got to experience the love and attachment that it was designed for. And so in this, in this mass murder scene, this one child is plucked. And God saves this one and allows it to attach to its parents. And it has this relationship with its biological and, and ethnic parents, its real parents. Moses got to know his mom and dad. And it wasn't just for three months. It continued on beyond that because all those four things can't happen in three months. Significant amount does happen. Even in the first few hours of being born, so much happens with attachment. But then maybe upwards of 10 years where he gets to know his parents he gets to know Miriam and Aaron, his older siblings. He gets to know his people. He gets to know who he is. And all of that is poured into him and formed in him. And then the painful experience of detaching from that family of origin that God designed and wired into him, detaches and he goes and he moves up the street into the palace. And he's not sad anymore because he's got everything you could ever imagine. No, he probably is still sad. 
There's a process that has to go through in him. But what happens is, is the purpose and the calling and the design for his life that God has uniquely on him as Moses begins to be formed and move into the next stage. And so in the midst of, of difficulty and the loss of family of origin, to move into the palace and to become Pharaoh's grandson had to be so disoriented towards him. But he also is trained as Egypt was one of the most advanced civilizations of the time. And he would have learned everything about arithmetic and, and science and grammar and literature and astronomy and all sorts of things. And he would have been educated history and learned all those things. And so he's got the best of both worlds. And what happens is, is that God has a unique call on Moses' life. And he doesn't just pluck Moses out of the Nile and put him into his family of origin. But then he uses Moses to pluck a whole nation of people out of slavery and into the promised land and to place them as part of his ongoing story to save and redeem the world. There's this fascinating little wrinkle in the story that I think is really worth acknowledging as well. And that's the role that women play in this particular story. We don't even have the names. Um, we find them later in different passages in scripture, uh, but Moses, Moses' mom is not named in, in the story. Miriam is not named in the story. Um, Pharaoh's daughter is Pharaoh's daughter. Um, the gal who got him out of the, the reeds isn't named. We do have the names of the two midwives. But at every Every move that Pharaoh makes, this evil leader who is trying to oppress and then murder children, every move that he makes is thwarted by and foiled by women. The, the midwives come up with this scheme and say, we're not gonna, we're gonna lie to you and tell you that we can't get there in time. That the Hebrew women themselves are having a lot of babies. He hates that. Joshebed decides, I'm not going to obey your law. I'm gonna obey my God's law over your law. A daughter, an older sister, spies out and sneaks in with some innocent sounding offer that was planned nights before. Pharaoh's daughter disobeys her dad. We've got women of faith and we've got women of, of no faith probably, or certainly not faith in the God of the Hebrews. But we have this this force that is working against, and they're not coordinating together and they're not organized, but what we see is, is God's hand moving the pieces and orchestrating something. In these 10 verses, we don't see the name of God mentioned, but what we see is that God is working things together for his will and for his good. And he's taking one baby, who's a ordin beyond ordinary, extraordinary, is a fine child, we don't know all of what that means exactly, but God has decided this is going to be the one that I'm gonna make mine. Of all of the Hebrew baby boys that are dying, I'm going to pick one. And while there's so much to celebrate for Moses' ethnic and biological family, it's in the midst of a time where there's great difficulty and significant loss for the people as a whole, where Joshebed has to live next door to a girlfriend who has lost her son, and they know of others have. And so there's great pain in the midst, and while they can celebrate this one, there's significant loss. And in the midst of that, 
we're invited to choose whether to believe or not believe. Like anything in scripture, once we've heard the story, we have a decision to make. There's kind of a disclaimer that should go ahead of any, any story in scripture. Anytime we teach, every time we open up the Bible is that we cannot remain neutral any longer. We have to decide, do I buy that? Do I not buy that? Do I think God was involved in that? Is that some story or legend or myth that was picked up from a different tribe, a different people, a different ethnicity and woven in because it makes sense? Do I think that that really happened? And not only did it really happen, but was God's hand in the midst of it, helping it, making it happen. And this is one link in a long chain as we've wide-lensed out and look at what happened before and then what happens after. The very picture that we've got up on this this screen in this background, if you haven't noticed or haven't looked closely, there's a bunch of little spots on the bottom there. It's an artist's rendition of the people of Israel, the Hebrew people on their way out of Egypt. And there's a hand there, that's Moses' hand, the baby that we've been talking about that grows up and leads the people out. That as the story goes on, God reveals over and over and over again how he's faithful to fulfill his promise. And so we have this decision to make of, of do we believe? And we can step into the story and feel what it's like for Moses' parents and siblings, even for Pharaoh's daughter, and to imagine what it would be like to be a boy, to grow up in that kind of experience. But there's another boy or man who had a very different life and different experience that Moses played a very, very small role in. We find later on in the New Testament that there's another man who uses and references Moses' story along with a lot of other stories, but his life looks very, very different. In Acts chapter seven, listen to these verses. Stephen is saying this. Acts chapter seven, verse 20. He's telling the story of God saving over and over and over again. Verse 20, at that time Moses was born and he was no ordinary child, there it is again. For three months he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Verse 20 again says, at that time, if we look at just the verses right prior to that, what is the time that this is at? If you back up to verse 17, as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. Stephen is telling the story of God's saving. And it's, it's quite a chapter. It goes on and on and he tells in great deal how God has saved and delivered and his hand had been on these people. And it says right there that he fulfilled his promise to Abraham, that God had promised to deliver and to provide and give a promised land and make his, him into a great people. And as we have recorded through scripture and as we know in history today, God did that, that's happened. Stephen had a very different life than Moses. Stephen is telling this story and if you're familiar with the book of Acts and again, we'll start studying it together in September. But Stephen's encountered Jesus, and he's come to place his faith in Jesus as the fulfillment 
the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to save. And the Holy Spirit has shown up and done just some crazy things and there's a wild scene and God is working in powerful and significant ways. And what's happening is the message that God saves and delivers through Jesus is spreading around Jerusalem and the people in power don't like it. And so they put, put Stephen on trial because he will not stop talking about it and he will not stop doing powerful signs. And so they put him on trial and he's standing in, in front of all the religious leaders and he just tells the entire story of God and Moses shows up. And this episode that we've looked at, this story that we've looked at today shows up as a significant part of the story of God saving and delivering over and over and over again, even in the midst of difficulty and great pain and violence being done against them. Stephen finishes the story, declares the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. And for that, he's taken out, he's beaten, and he's stoned to death, and he dies. And what we see in Stephen is a demonstration of a radical kind of faith, of somebody who has said, I believe that there's a good God of the universe. I believe that his hand has been on humanity over and over and over, revealing that he's good, revealing that he delivers, revealing that he rescues, and giving an opportunity for people over and over and over, generation after generation after generation, to place their faith, their hope, their trust and their life in God's hands. And Stephen says, I've done that. You can't touch me. And they describe the look on his faith, both as he's witnessing and testifying to the story of God and as they're putting him to death, as glowing. And there's this joy on his face because he knows his creator, he knows his savior, and he's experienced rescue already even as they're taking his life. And he knows that he will be with God forever for all of eternity. This story of Moses is one little link. It's one little glimpse in a much, much bigger story of God's desire that humanity would know that he loves us, he watches over us, and he is ready and willing, and he is saving us right now. The beautiful thing about Moses is that he wasn't just saved when he was plucked out at three months old. But he was saved and he continued to be saved over and over and over again. And God not only saved in past, but is saving right now. And the invitation to each and every one of us is to regardless of what kind of circumstances in our lives that we can look at and say, but this is difficult and this is painful and this is confusing. And I've experienced great loss and great grief is in the midst of all of that to be able to say, God, I don't understand all of the, the circumstances of my life right now. I don't understand why, why life continues to be so difficult. And I want your promises to be fulfilled in my life and I want goodness to come in my life. And it just seems like it, it, the more I reach for it, the more it slips away. The story of Moses and the story of Stephen are meant to say even in the worst of times, in the most difficult of times, in the most violent of times, that he is here and he is available and he's accessible. It's one of the reasons that we gather over and over and over again. It's one of the reasons that we sing songs that, with words like, God, would your kingdom come? Would your will be done? Because there's not a lot of places that I see it happening. It's a reason that we come to this table over and over and over again. We say, Jesus, you are the God who saves, that I can't know salvation and rescue truly deep in my soul without your work on the cross. And so as we continue to sing together, I invite you to come and take a, 
a cup that represents Jesus' blood shed for me and for you. And take a little cracker that represents his body broken for me and for you. And as you do, would you, would you do it, whether it's something that is easy for you to believe today, or it's whether it's something that you feel like is, is a stretch and difficult, and that you feel like it's missed with a lot of skepticism and a lot of doubt, and maybe even some cynicism, that you choose to say, God, I believe even in the midst of, of difficulty and challenge and struggle. Jesus, you are the one that saves. As we declare that God, our Father, has had his hand on each and every one of our lives, has had his hand on the life of the people that he formed from Abraham throughout all of Scripture, and now has his hand on the church throughout the world, would we be a people that in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of our skepticism, in the midst of our struggle, choose to step forward and to say, I believe, help my unbelief. God, you are good. I want to know you. I want to hear from you. I want to meet with you. I want to be with you. And Jesus, as we take this cup and as we take this cracker, as we sing to you, we remind us again of your love for us, your sacrifice for us, your rescue and redemption in each and every one of our lives.